0: Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Strecker. This is an independent, ad-free, listener-supported podcast. To become a supporter, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Hello, everyone. Uh, this episode is an interview with Rita Chang Epic, who recently wrote a really fun novel about piracy and feelings in the South China Sea, it's called Deep as a Sky, Red as a Sea, and it is all about the life and travails and the spirituality and the um, marriage and politics and everything of probably the world's most successful pirate, a real-life pirate queen. This episode pairs really well with the recent interview on Asian maritime history with Eric Tagliacozzo. so if you haven't listened to that one yet... Um, Give that one a listen uh, before listening to this one, or listen to this one, and then go listen to that one. Uh, This is kind of an unintentional duology on my part. uh, All about trade and boats and piracy in a really exciting part of the world, and in a really exciting time period. I love the book, by the way. Pick up Deep as the Sky, Red as the Sea. It just came out at the end of May, so it's all over bookstores at the moment. And Rita Chang Epic was a joy to talk to So here's our conversation. Rita Chang-Epic, hello.
1: Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me today. Uh, So we're talking about your book, Deep as the Sky, Red as the Sea, which is a novel, but it is a novel based on some very real history. Uh, What... What time period does the book cover? When does it take place?
1: Yeah, the book takes place uh, in the early 1800s in, along the coast of southern China. So um, this is happening during uh, the Qing Dynasty in China.
0: Yeah. And so what was the South China Sea uh, like back then? What, what might one have encountered?
1: It was pretty lawless. I mean, it was a time of uh, massive social inequalities. Um, there, were, uh, there was a lot of poverty. There were a lot of people who couldn't eat, couldn't feed their families. And so the South China, uh, southern China area, because it was right next to the South China Sea, which hosted a lot of commerce and you know, just maritime traffic in general, uh, it became a, a hotbed of, uh, of piracy activity for people who were trying to um, get a little bit of extra income or, you know, rob a little bit of food to to feed themselves.
0: Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to bury the lead. This is, this is a pirate book.
1: <laughs> <And> it's great. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Today I found a way to fit it in there. It's fine.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it focuses on what, okay, when I have talked with people who are pirate nerds and- <laughs> I, I seem to know many of them. uh the protagonist of your book actually comes up a lot as maybe the most successful pirate of all time mm-hmm. because when i've when I've seen her talked about before, uh she's been referred to as Madame Chang. That's not what you call her in the book. um please forgive my pronunciation uh yung suk young
1: Sek young the h is kind of silent Yung okay yeah.
0: um I. Apologize immensely Mm -hmm. for not Mm -hmm. being able to pronounce Chinese or Cantonese names. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, Mm Kyung, yeah, who was she?
1: Yeah, so um, so first of all, I've always found that, I mean, I, I like that des- designation, you know, the most successful pirate history, although I've I always kind of had questions in my mind about how do you designate a pirate successful? You know, like, I don't think anybody was keeping track of how much money she was robbing. So I, I, I like the designation. I just, um, I've always find, found it humorous. But she was this uh, real, real person who uh, lived in the area of, um, of, you know, kind of that uh, Hong Kong, Macau region at the time. And she started off as a uh, peasant uh peasant girl peasant woman like i some records say that she started off in a family of fishermen and then um again records i mean records of her early life are just kind of sparse in general but Uh, One version of it says that she herself was kidnapped by pirates when she was a young woman and sold to uh, what they then euphemistically called flower boats, um, but that we now would think of as brothels. Um, and while she was working um, on the flower boats, she met the, the, the person, uh, you can kind of think of him like a pirate king, like he was the uh, commander of the largest pirate fleet in the region at the time. And the story goes that he was so impressed with her um, shrewdness, he was impressed with her ability to, um, you know, be to negotiate and to be diplomatic when necessary that he married her and uh, gave her control over half of his fleet, basically like let her have free reign over quite a number of his, of his ships and people. And then um, after, after he died again, the records are uh, kind of, um, you know, sort of ambiguous here, but some, some people say that he died during a typhoon. Some people say he died during a battle but uh she she quickly uh seized power over the fleet by marrying uh the person who was his second in command so the book is it chronicles her her rise to power and then also her her eventual retirement actually can we cut that because i feel like i just gave spoilers for my spoilers. own time.
0: okay we can cut that but um <laughs> off the record like one of the reasons why a lot of folks consider her so successful is because she retires, which
1: okay, sure. many, many
0: pirates don't get to do. But yeah, we'll cut that.
1: No, I mean, we, we can keep it. I mean, I, 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 you know, I think that's one of the tricks of writing up a historical novel, right, which is that the facts are, I think, often um, pretty, you know, they're, they're, they're not secrets. They're things that people know, but it's the question of how do you make it interesting anyway that, um, that I think makes historical fiction so great you know like um yeah so so we can we can keep it you know what let's it's we'll we'll keep it we'll keep it loose
0: (laughs) okay okay we can keep it in (laughs) absolutely uh yeah that actually is that actually does lead me sort of down a rabbit hole that i would love asking you about um how do you end up creating uh tension and drama and uncertainty for a story that a lot of people are going to know the ending uh, ending to i mean certainly she's not a household name it's not like you know She's not like Queen Victoria for, right. or anything like that, but there are people who are going to go into the story knowing how it ends. And how do you still make something of value for them?
1: So, yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of like that saying, you know, like the what is it? the 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 fun is in the journey, or something. I mean, I think I I think that even when you know the broad outlines of a story, that uh, often there are a lot of very legitimate questions about, well, how do you get from point A uh, to point B, right? And um, what, for me, one of the things that draws me to historical fiction is that, especially for a person like Sik young who um, th- there aren't that many detailed records about her. You know, this isn't someone for whom we have archives and archives of uh, manuscripts and and. Uh, previous dissertations and such to you know about her life so you're the 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 broad outlines of history like the specific battles that took place you know the uh how she came to meet the pirate king and you know what she later on had to do to seize power um all of these things are really a kind of i i think of them as the skeleton of a historical novel but you know a skeleton isn't a whole person right the whole person uh, a whole person consists of organs and blood and all of those other things and so i think of the 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 interpersonal dynamics to relationships the uh, conflicts that occur I think of those as the lifeblood and organs that fill in the historical skeleton um, to make it a whole person so uh, yeah I mean for me I think that's one of that's one of my uh, you know the, one of the reasons I personally find joy in historical fiction and I, I think I try to try to imbue this particular novel with that
0: yeah you know it just occurs to me that uh, this line of questioning and discussion uh historical fiction is kind of like the ultimate answer to uh spoiler phobia because <laughs> yes you can't really you can't really spoil history right like it's genuine genuinely known. but uh, how do we know about suk young what are what are our sources on her?
1: so th- there are kind of two sources. There are these stories that come from East Asia itself about her. So, you know, there's local lore about her um, and it's not just in uh, China. Like I personally, I was born and raised in Taiwan and there are stories about her there as well. So there's that uh, pipeline. And then um, there are the Europeans uh, back then who came into contact with her or came into contact with her fleet uh, or or just came into contact with the with the pirates that, uh, you know, really, again, they overwhelmed the South China Sea at the time. So, and those records, if you uh, do a deep dive in academic libraries in uh, the US, you can actually uh, find access to some of them. So like one particular document that I found that was fascinating was, a. am trying to remember the exact context now. It is a, it was a letter, and by by letter, I mean like book length letter about, um, written by an Englishman um to recommend to uh the government what they needed to do to uh, control or or to overcome the piracy problem in China so it was a it was a guy who basically had like compiled all of these sources of information about the different fleets and about the the ways of life on uh on on these fleets and um and yeah, and wrote this very long letter to the government saying, like, this is the ABC. These are the things that, you know, I, I think we need to do to to um, because the pirates were cutting into the European powers' uh, um, profit margins with uh, with all, with all of the robbing that they were doing. So, you know, there there were sources like like that that were just really uh, indispensable in helping me craft um a picture of not just how the pirate fleets looked from the East Asian side of things, but also how they were perceived by the colonial um, English, or not just the European powers at the time. How were
0: these pirate fleets organized? What was life like in them? What was the power structures like? How did they, how did they make decisions, choose targets, all of that?
1: They started out as these, independent or relatively independent fleets? I mean, so part of the difficulty in my, you know, in my answering that question is that they, these things, um, they they fluctuated, they changed uh, from moment Mm -hmm. to moment, very often during times of uh, need, right? So like right after a famine, for example, um, the number of pirates, the the numbers, uh, the number of operating pirates would skyrocket. Because everybody needed to needed food, everybody needed to eat, and then during times when um, the harvest was pretty good, or you know during times when um, you know the climate wasn't as uh, amenable to to piracy, the numbers would go, would go down. But generally speaking, there were all of these kind of small independent fleets that were operating um, in the South China Sea. And then one of the the big things that this pirate commander um, that I mentioned uh, and Sekyung did was that they uh, unified these separate little fleets into a, a kind of larger federation. Um, so uh, the idea being that if we all cooperate with one another, and if we all you know, share our information and share our profits and all that, then we have a, a, a better shot of, you know, robbing more money and B, Um, We have a better shot of uh, staying out of the clutches of the um, the Qing government, which, as you might imagine, was very actively trying to trying to put down this problem.
0: Yeah, you mentioned in the book that the Qing government, um, they appoint basically a a functionary, a specialist, Uh, I guess, in the United States government, we would call him a czar whose job is to, you know, get rid of the pirate problem. Uh, Was that something that really happened?
1: yeah uh i i i i thank you for reminding me that here we do call call it like the czar or something right um, <laughs> yeah you know, true which i yeah again funny term I don't know how we kind of came by it um in my mind it's funny I've always thought of this guy this real real historical figure I've always thought of him as like the van Helsing of pirates <laughs> 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 they can if you need to get rid of the vampire slash pirate problem but um but yeah, so this was a real guy his name was uh Zhang bai ling i um in the book, I, I went, I, I kind of took some liberties with his name and uh, made him of um, Southern Chinese extract. But in the records, he was referred to as uh, uh, Zhang Bailing. And um, he, he, was the, he was a very shrewd uh, strateg, strateg, strategist. And um, he was also, uh, so he, the emperor basically gave him a lot of power to try to subdue the pirates, um, in, uh, you know, in the Southern region.
0: Um, and I guess this would be, uh, maybe spoiling things for the book, but, uh, how, how did that shake out, uh, for the Chinese government?
1: I mean, uh, based on some of the stuff that I was reading, um, the piracy hit a peak with Seqyong's fleet and after she retired again this is you know maybe we don't cut out the spoilers because then this conversation that you and I are having right now wouldn't make that much sense but okay. like who retired um the, i mean like that was considered the end really of the the golden era of chinese pirates so i i will let people make their own inferences and kind of conc- draw their own conclusions about how successful this guy was because the age of the golden age was over
0: fair enough um, in the early 1800s, if you were in the China, uh, South China Sea, what would it have been like to be on the receiving end of an attack by pirates?
1: Pretty miserable. I mean, I, th- okay. I, 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 would, I would imagine <laughs> that in general, no matter where you are in the world, getting attacked by pirates. Usually doesn't work out well for the victims, I have to guess. But um, but yeah, specifically for the for the um, Chinese fleets, you know, it's interesting that uh, document I mentioned from the um, person who was trying to uh, who was writing a letter to the um, to the English government it was saying that, interestingly, the these fleets were actually pretty, I mean, insofar as one can be kind to a captive, right? Um, but like these fleets were generally fairly kind to the, the European captives that they held, and I think part of the reason for that was because they wanted money for them. Mm. They knew they knew that they would be able to get uh, a handsome um, amount of ransom money if they if they kept the um, the European captives in good shape. Uh, the brutality. Very often extended uh, more to the um, the fellow their fellow Chinese um, captives, and so it usually it came out it, it would shake out one of two ways, right? Either they try to ransom you and they get the money that they wanted from you know for 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 kidnapping you, so that that's that. Or if the family is unable to pay and usually the families were unable to pay because these you know like usually you're at sea because you're some poor fisherman who you know you're 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 just trying to make a buck um and you're there's no way your family can pay the ransom so usually what they would do is they would press gang you um to be a part of the fleet and actually that's one of the ways that a lot of these fleets um really swelled in number it was because they for every ship they captured, right? For every fishing boat um they captured, they would gain like a, a, a quite a number of extra extra hands. Yeah, so so that was us- those were usually the two pathways. Um, you know, again, it for a lot of times for uh, women and um children or at least younger people. Uh, sometimes they would sell the they uh, they would traffic the um the the people that they. F- felt like wouldn't contribute enough to life on board
0: yeah so one of the other um major figures in the book is a sea goddess who again i'm going to woefully mispronounce the chinese name a sea goddess who is named mazu is I am i Mm -hmm. saying that right yeah Mm -hmm. mazu okay and suk uh relationship with her uh and mazu is an actual figure from chinese religions uh who
1: Mm -hmm. is she yeah, she, well, so she actually was supposedly a historical figure. I mean, again, oh, really, okay. Yeah, I mean, who 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 knows with, you know, the way records are kept how how true this is, but um one in one version of the story she was just a, again a regular regular peasant girl who um grew up in uh, what is what we now call uh, Fujian uh, in China, which is like the southeastern coast of China. And um the there there were many many stories about her about how you know she mastered the the sutras the buddhist sutras when she was like 4 years old or 7 years old i forget and um you know how she had all of these miraculous powers so uh after she died um there was a kind of uh, there there was a, a literal i guess apotheosizing of her, um, and she became uh, worshipped as a goddess of the sea. As sometimes, in, in actually, in other circles, if you in many temples in Taiwan, for example, like she's not just thought as the god, not just thought of as the goddess of the sea, but as the Empress of Heaven. Um, so Tianhou is the the other um, epithet for her. Um, Because uh, the idea was that she kind of ascended to heaven and became became empress of heaven, and so um, one of the things that I encountered over the course of my research for this novel was that pirates at the time in that region actually were surprised. I mean, you know, you might not think like a bunch of people who make their living, you know, robbing and killing people would be really spiritual spiritually minded, but they actually kind of were. Like they were very often devout worshippers. Of Mazu, um, which you know kind of makes sense when you think about the fact that like they they live a kind of life where one bad storm and it could be all over, um, and so they um, and and one especially, especially fun fact that I encountered was that Cheng Po, who is uh, the, the who was the um, the pirate king's uh, second in command, he was um, he like went around um, the the um, region building temples. Mm. to to mazu under the uh, you know assumption i guess that if he built enough temples or if he gave her enough offerings that uh, you know that his piracy would be successful so yeah some records say that she was a real figure and that um, because of her magical powers essentially that she became a goddess
0: yeah and she is still a um
1: she's still widely worshipped
0: yeah, yeah, I was going to say going concerned, but yeah, she is still widely worshiped. Um when you were thinking about uh Seokyoung's spirituality for the book, mm-hmm. how did there is in the book I want I don't want to say necessarily like fantasy elements, mm-hmm. but it feels like it gets close to maybe maybe magical realism. How did you mm-hmm. um go about negotiating, you know, turning real-world religious traditions into magical realism or fantasy elements or um maybe you didn't think about it that way like how how did you end up like threading that needle it seems like kind of a thorny place to be working honestly
1: <laughs> it, uh. it is and you know the way that i think about it is i i try to you know this book is write, written from the close uh, uh, pov of sekyung herself and so i think one of the things that i was really trying to do was i was trying to say to myself like okay to the extent you know, that it's possible for somebody living in the year, you know, 20, I was working on this in like 2019, 2020, 2021, to the extent that it's possible for someone living in our current era to see through the eyes of somebody who was living that kind of a life in the early 1800s, you know, how, how would I, how would I understand um, the world around me? And, you know, one of the things that I, um, that kind of occurred to me was that, so there is this book It's not um, a history book. Oh, I guess you can call it a kind of like oral folklore slash history book. It's... um, uh... Tales from a strange tales from a Chinese studio. I don't know if you're, you're familiar with it, but it's by wait, that sounds
0: guy. familiar. Yes,
1: yes, okay. So there's there, there was this guy, um, in China hundreds of years ago. His name was Pu, uh, Pu Songling. I actually don't remember the tones because I um I read the book in English, but um, he was this guy. He just went around to different villages in China and he would essentially tell people, Tell me, tell me like basically, tell me the strangest story you've ever heard, tell me the coolest story you've ever heard or experienced. And then he compiled this book that, you know, was translated into English as strange tales from a Chinese studio where um, it's, it's all these people being like, Oh, this, you know, this is a thing that happened to my second cousin, or this is a thing that happened to, you know, the the guy who lived down the street from me. And um, one, one of the things I noticed when I read that book um, a number of years ago was that, um, uh, so it, you know, in like U.S. and European fairy tale traditions, right, usually stories have uh, fairy tales, um, you know, have like a kind of once upon a time or like a long, long time ago kind of quality to it. It's it's a quality meant to distance the reader or the listener from the story. The idea is this, you know, this didn't happen here. This happened someplace that you don't know about or at some time that um, you don't, you know, you don't live but the stories in this um, in this compilation, this um, Strange uh, Tales from the 22, they were all highly, highly specific. So it would be like, in this year, in this particular village, this thing happened. And, you know, like, some, sometimes they even give details, I think, that are meant to verify. You know, the, you know, like, if you go talk to the butcher, you know, if you go talk to the, the cobbler, um, they will tell you that this story actually happened. And all of the stories were incredibly, they're fantastical stories. You know, they're stories about ogres and ghosts and um, demigods. And and so it made me think a lot about how the boundaries of reality have not always been considered firm by mm. people across time and by people across cultures, if that makes any sense. Like, like I think these days, right, like in... Um, And, you know, I I would I would argue that it's not even for everybody these days. It's only for some people these days that there is this kind of delineation between magic and reality or between fantasy and reality. But like across many cultures, across many times, it was this kind of like, yeah, like, you know, talk to the butcher like he encountered this ogre. And so um, so that. I I guess I wasn't personally thinking of it as as like, oh, I'm writing in the magical realism tradition or I'm writing in this tradition. I was thinking of it in terms of like, okay, well, if the boundaries of reality are kind of fuzzy or um, were kind of fuzzy, um, then how would that, how how might that manifest itself um, in a fictional work?
0: (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. And also now that you mention it, now that you mention it, when we do encounter Mazu in the book, much of the time it is from uh sekyung's subjectivity mm-hmm. and working working within that yeah um we are just about out of time is there anything that we haven't gotten to that you would like to speak to
1: um i mean you know i, I yeah I, I i mean i think i'm going to kind of um talk out of the both sides sides of my mouth for a second yeah okay I, you know, go for I, it do it all right so the first thing is that you know like obviously i'm not a historian right i am a okay. i am a novelist i i want to kind of you know for the folks who are listening to this or um you know i i I I'm not a historian. I don't. I have not. Done no, neither that. am
0: I. I'm a guy with a podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know, I, I want to just be clear about that. But at the same time, that you know, I would like to think I did quite a bit amount of research um, mm-hmm. for this book. And um, I think something that I personally really like about it, that hope readers will like too, is that a lot of a lot of the events in the book are 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 a real. You know, like they actually happen. A lot of the characters in the book um, are people who actually existed like there's this like character in the book i guess i won't spoil who but like um there's this person uh, this woman who's like an expert at firearms at like uh, european firearms and you know it sounds like i made this person up for the sake of adding some cool battle scenes or whatever but like no she was a real person um and so um you know like with the caveat that i'm not a historian um i i i i do think that i you know like i i I would like to think I really added elements of authenticity to to the book, so I'm just gonna put that out there
0: i mean it does it it feels very immediate and vivid, like i I was really enjoyed it uh i was going not going to say I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. I was not surprised, but yeah, uh, it is a time period in a region that is like very interesting to me, in fact, the last interview I did. Uh, for this show was actually also about Asian maritime history. I know. I, so, I noticed that.
1: It was really
0: cool. Yeah. Oh, you. Yeah, I listened to you, it. You Googled, yeah. yeah. You Googled it. Okay, great. <clears throat> so yeah, I I loved reading this right after that. Like <laughs> that other book, it was like, uh, it is like a hefty academic book about this yeah. same subject matter. And this was yeah. like a fun adventure book about like right. the academic book that I read more recently. So it was great. Uh, where can people find it?
1: Um, I think it's available, so the book comes on May 30th, and it's available for pre-order now um, on, you know, wherever you you order books.
0: All right. Uh, Rita Chang-Epic, thank you so much for talking with us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Hope you all enjoy that. Once again, thank you to Rita Chang-Epic for taking the time to talk to us. Go online and give the Weird History podcast ratings and reviews on your podcatcher of choice. As always, the podcast is written, produced, hosted, and edited by Joe Streckert. That is me. All our visual assets are created by and our website is designed and maintained by Sarah Giffro of Upswept Creative. Uh, Thank you all very much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.